everyone, welcome to Mentally Sounds podcast series. This is episode 93, our special New Year show. My name is Ricky Thamen and I'm your host for the next hour. Mentally Sound is a mental health and mental well-being show. The idea is that myself and my guests talk candidly and at substance on everything to do with mental health. So on that basis, as a disclaimer, we strongly advise that you go see your GP, nearest therapist or crisis centre if you find the topics of our discussion distressing for you. A reminder that Mentally Sound is a podcast, formerly a radio show, that pre-exists the pandemic and lockdown, so we adapted to podcast medium for the meantime, during and post-lockdown. If you listen to us on Spice FM, Newcastle's brilliant community radio station from the heart of the West End, you can tune in via 98.8 FM or online via the website at spicefm.co.uk and we're on, on Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock and repeat on Saturday afternoons at 3 o'clock and we're also on DAB Radio. If you'd like to get in touch, perhaps be signposted to a guest or seek advice from our therapist, you can email us at mentallysound at spicefm.co.uk or get in touch via social media where we have links to all our shows as well. On Twitter, we're at underscore mentally sound. On Instagram, we're at mentally sound radio. And on Facebook, it's mentally sound radio show, radio show being in brackets. And incidentally, on our Facebook header page, you'll find all the updated archives for all our podcasts with all the relative podcasts listed underneath. We're also on the relevant podcast platforms. Look up Mentally Sound on Clips, spelled C-L-Y-P, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Anchor. And on our show this week, it was our first live recording of a winter walk. Myself and Amy Mitzer, a therapist, talk about the benefits of being outdoors, what it does to our well-being and what walking does to our frame of mind as we walk along the route between Newburn and Wylam along the riverside. And in part two, we once again speak to author Stephen End, who wrote the book Football for Brains, a quiz book designed to raise awareness for dementia and exploring the links between football and Alzheimer's and how ex-professionals are raising awareness for this as well with their families and what the latest developments there are. Interesting discussion and of course includes a lot of football chat in that. So sit back and enjoy our New Year episode. Once again, Happy New Year. And I hope you enjoy. Welcome, listeners, to Mentally Sound, episode 93. My name is Ricky Thamen. I'm your host for the next few minutes. And we're in the beginnings, I think the one end of the Wylam Walk, is that right Amir? Yeah, the Riverside, Newburn Riverside Country Park, yeah. beautiful isn't it? Yeah, and you've heard the tones of his voice as you have before, my esteemed guest and therapist Amir Murta has joined myself as we're doing a bit of a winter walk in between Christmas and New Year, just to gather a bit of outside, maybe um, grab a bit of birdsong, add some ambience and atmosphere to this podcast, or this first part to this podcast, which is going to be a special New Year's podcast. And uh, my first question to you, Amir, sir, how was your Christmas and festive greetings? How are you doing? Thank you very much, Ricky. Always an amazing introduction. Um, it was really nice. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm more inclined now just to relax. I don't, I find myself less and less ensued in this chaos that is Christmas. Yeah. And more, more in, you know, finding quality time and yeah. uh, spending peace, finding a bit of peace. And you think nature and peace are just two things that go together, aren't they? Hand like, in hand. Like hand in gloves. Yeah. Hand in hand. Yeah. 
Yeah. And just as we as just as we parked up here, I was just astounded. And I shouldn't be, but I think for a lot of people, the, the, the beauty that's on your doorstep just never ceases to astound you, does it? I mean, you know, just what, a few minutes away from the West End, um, in between, what would you say, Hexham's a few miles away? No, so no, we're literally about three miles yeah, outside yeah, of Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I remember doing a, a charity walk with our school a long while ago, and uh, I guess back then we didn't appreciate nature as it is but it, it's gorgeous out here by the river isn't it i mean you see you're a regular uh, out here aren't you how many times you come out here um well it's, it's not as much as i'd like to sure but Me i too. mean lockdown around about that time is a good example i'll be up in here doing about five six miles about three four times a week right from what you recall were, were a lot of people out here using it because we had limited time to go outside didn't we and uh yeah, um, nothing against cyclists, but there was too many of them. <laughs> right. Uh, all of a sudden turned up, and now as you can see, they're very far and few between. Yeah. So, um, just putting it out there, if anybody's bought a bike and doesn't use it anymore, we can give it a good charitable cause, can't we, really? Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, this is a really, really nice <clears throat> spot. <clears throat> we were talking before, just before we got here, I mean, didn't we, that I was mentioning to you that I know a couple of counsellors, for example, that take clients outside, because the idea of being surrounded in nature and going for a walk perhaps could enable that person to reveal their true feelings, maybe become emboldened to talk honestly about what's going on inside in their minds. Do you think there's truth to that? And is that something that you've practiced before with people? I have actually. Um, strange, just a few months ago in a special education need school, right. uh, specialist in that was severe uh, disabilities as well, oh, sure. mental and physical. Uh, I quickly realised that um, they don't do it in all schools, but because yeah. this school was very secure, yeah. we just used to walk around the grounds and he engaged so well. Right. You know, and that's just the grounds outside? Outside, just between, you know, in the trees, in the fields, okay. in the garden. Okay. We'd walk around the school, that's where we held our sessions. Right, right. You know? And you felt that that was getting the best out of that person then you would well, be? Well, he felt it was the best as well because right. it'd be, the first concerns were how he would engage with me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we'd have a teacher present just to, mm -hmm. you know, have him feeling comfortable. But then yeah. they, they realised after one, they said, oh, he gets on with you really well. I said, but it's not that. It's actually because we're out. Mm -hmm. I asked to go outside mm -hmm. and we're in the open and, and there's mm -hmm. not too many distractions. Mm -hmm. he's, he's in a safe environment. And, and I know a lot of, of yeah, I know a lot of like sort of charity do a lot of these walk and talks because the, the peers. But also my next question, I mean, I think there's too much of a maybe, uh, maybe it's part of the stigma. But when you think about people going for counselling or, or going for an assessment, that sort of clinical environment within the confines of those four walls, maybe the counsellor sitting there with a clipboard or you're lying back there in the chair. Do you think there's too much of that going on maybe inside some people's minds that might think that's an environment I don't want to be in and maybe going outside is a better alternative to maybe to tell a potential client, patient, whatever, that here's a better alternative and this is why it's good. It doesn't have to be within, you know, those sorts of confines, if you see my meaning. It's a very interesting question and it needs to be answers from both sides of that from the people who regularly attend therapy to the ones who've never attended it before. Now, the first one is the question you asked how people worry about it. And yes, they are, because they've never, they've never really attended it before. Yeah. And they're concerned what's going to happen. And mm -hmm. that's, that's part of, a big part of the worry. Yeah. But how I reassure them mm -hmm. is that, look, you've decided to come here voluntarily. I said, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Well, you, that's 90% of the battle. Yeah. Because you can't drag somebody to therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, 
then they become relaxed and you know e even being outside uh, it helps a lot more I think especially with the elements and how they associate with yeah. the elements yeah. or memories they have I mean there was a the psychology group uh, community psychology group uh, we used to meet um, they still do we used to meet at uh, Newcastle University mm -hmm. and they used to do walk and talk groups about 10-12 mm -hmm. years ago mm -hmm. and these were clinical psychologists and some mm -hmm. you know um, some were really high up within the um, mental health service at the NHS okay. and they went out of their way and they would invite people who'd experienced all types of different difficulties to invite them out okay. but then with experienced professionals mm -hmm. to have a walk and process what they're doing okay. and of course it helps in two ways doesn't it as you know yourself mental health mm -hmm. one of the biggest part of that is isolation mm -hmm. And so what this would open up is they weren't isolated because there was other people yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the key word. I, yeah. It's the isolation and the non-isolation aspect of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I also used to run process groups or yeah. what they call therapy groups now. But what would happen is you would get people experiencing nearly the same type of scenario, but in, in a different way. And then when you, once, once you got them in a group, mm -hmm. they realised mm -hmm. that they weren't isolated. Mm -hmm. Other people would experience this mm -hmm. because you know yourself, you know, is when you're suffering anxiety, depression, it's so isolating mm -hmm. and, and it can leave you feeling on your own. Well, actually, it's not. Mm -hmm. Other people experience it and the connections that were made within those groups mm -hmm. were absolutely amazing. And, you mm -hmm. know, the common theme we'd have, oh, wow, you feel that too. Mm -hmm. You go through that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to make someone yeah, understand when yeah. they're suffering that yeah. a lot yeah. of people are going through yeah. it, not minimising what they're going through mm -hmm. because you've got to be very careful. We're not minimising what they're experiencing we're actually saying that a shared experience in that yeah. way will benefit you so i fully agree with this and that group element making it as if so it's not just yourself that others there yeah and i guess it's like a safety numbers mentality isn't it that and going back to shared experience i guess it works in in my own story journey however you want to put it because when i was invited on radio 4 to talk about my trauma called shared experience yeah. and you know what it was when i got down to Bristol because that's where the BBC invited me to go down okay whilst it wasn't outside it was actually in the producer's kitchen yeah. and it was on the kitchen table mm -hmm. so we had all these nice little snacks in the middle mm -hmm. fruit, fruit bowls and everything but the doors were open <laughs> it was a lovely spring day and you can actually hear the bird song outside and it didn't take me long from me initially being really nervous about it to actually feel actually quite relaxed and even though I didn't know the people beside me, once we got talking, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, you've been through a very similar experience to me, and now I feel more yep. at ease to tell my mm -hmm. own story, so it, it all works. But going back to the, the walking aspect of it, is there <clears> something <throat> to do with being in motion as well, or that, I, that, that helps that process? One of the first steps I take when we were talking about therapy and how I encourage people to engage in their own well-being is the first steps I encourage is doing mindful walks. Right. So we're sitting here now, and if you listen, rather than to your thoughts, if you listen to mm -hmm. the birds, yeah. the wind yeah. on the trees, yeah. even the odd car passing by, yeah. those are sounds that would have passed you by if you'd have been stuck yeah. if you, in your trauma. Now, right. this gives you a little bit of respite. That right. It gives you the space yeah. for your mind to take a breather because yeah. You know, as you're aware, you've spoken to a lot of people that the biggest problem they have is the mind never stops. Mm -hmm. And I regularly get this. Mm -hmm. And after the first session, yeah, I, I, you know, get some amazing responses. That's mm -hmm. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I went for a 10-minute walk mm -hmm. in between my work. Yeah. And yeah. 
my whole afternoon was fine. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and and it's not. I have to put it in the context of like I'm not simplifying mm. what you're experiencing. What I'm doing is you can get a little bit of control, and of course yeah. that little bit triggers more mindfulness walking, more mindfulness mm. approach to themselves, mm. and understanding that your mind needs a rest. Mm. You know, Absolutely. so this yeah. is what I would say is being out in the countryside and on a mindful yeah. walk. And this exactly relates to something I read about recently. Um, when I first heard the terminology of white noise, mm-hmm. it was used by my sister to get her baby daughter to, to, yeah. to sleep at night. Yeah. But when I read up about white noise, it actually means a whole lot of things. Yeah. And it relates to me because, you know, with my trauma, my PTSD, I describe as a curveball of a lot of things. And of course, one of them, a big biggie, was insomnia yeah. and difficulty getting to sleep. Now, of course... There was a time where it all became quite uh, sort of in vogue as to buying CDs that plays nature sounds, yep. whale sounds. Does that relate to what you're talking about as well? A lot simpler than that, Ricky. A lot simpler, right. Um, historical, you know, uh, people who are suffering from PTSD and everything have had some amazing results just by changing a habit and setting the intention. Yeah. So let's say if we were planning a day. Okay, what I would suggest to you is do a little bit of mindfulness in the morning. And then the evenings when you feel, we find out the times when they're most overwhelmed, mm. which is normally before they're going to bed. Yes. Because what people have when they're, when they're suffering with their mental health, they try to keep themselves busy okay. and not think about it. Okay. So, of course, obviously, it's going to all overflow when you lie down and you've got nothing else to think about yeah. or when you go to sleep and wake up yeah. and then think wow you know why am I thinking this now but it's because you haven't processed it so okay. the way to process it is what I would recommend is going for a 30 minute if you can never mind the weather mm-hmm. the, you know the, the more extreme the elements as well the better it is because you're aware of the elements rather than your thoughts do a oh, mindful walk okay. right even if it's raining hear the rain falling, you just find a little so bit... So when you said extreme elements, forgive me, I was thinking like blizzards of snow, but it doesn't well, have to be that. I mean, you know, some people don't, um, some people don't, don't engage in that way. Yeah. Some people don't, it's all right. some people don't engage in that way. Just for listeners, we've, we've met by a four-legged friend here. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. And um, it's that where you find the peace. Yeah. It's everything's about giving your mind that break. So right. if you know during the day you're experiencing mental health, you're doing this, you want to manage it, is to turn around and put reminders in your diary mm-hmm. that whatever's going on at lunchtime, I'm going to take a 10-minute walk. I'm going to take a 10-minute mm-hmm. mindfulness breathing exercise. I'm yeah. going to do that and just recharge. Then at nighttime, what you've got to look forward to, I've had a really difficult day, but yeah. there's a reminder, I need to do this walk. Right. And once the intention is set mm-hmm. and you understand why you're doing it, then you have that something to look forward to. So, so it's about stapling it in your routine and making it a concrete. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, because I, I absolutely wholesomely agree with that because I often feel that, you know, when we're pushed for time for a lot of things, it's often these sorts of things where we, we feel that, well, we can sacrifice taking that out, you know, be it exercise, be it walks. But I'm of that mindset now where, no, don't, don't sacrifice that. If you've got to sacrifice something, try and make it something else. But then... It's so important to keep that within within our natural day to day stuff. Yeah, when yeah. it's what we it's what we it's the things that we need to do. Yeah, you know, and 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 what happens is, and with all sorts of things that people are suffering with related to, we actually need to do the opposite of what we're doing mm. 
to find a bit of peace. Whereas mm. people mm. actually get stuck in doing things that compound it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can all go to eating disorders related to that, everything, you know, they, they're, they're spending that much time trying to manage them, yeah, yeah. their anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, that they, they forget that you actually need the opposite. And the last thing you want to do, you've had mm. such a difficulty at work, you're stressed out, you're everything else. How can you see that going for a 20-minute walk is going to benefit you? But you're not going to know until you try it, yeah. till you're yeah. there in the moment, till you're there in the present. Yeah. Because when you're experiencing your mental health, you're not in the present. Mm. You're either getting mm. anxious about the future or mm. processing the depression from yeah. the past. Absolutely, absolutely. But... Um, one of my favourite sounds is more kind of industrial. Mm -hmm. I like. We, we, did you hear the train that go past uh, just before that? All the time, yes. When I when I was a kid, we one of my first visits to <coughs> India, we used to stay in those overnight train journeys going uh -huh. from north to south. So when we'd be on the sleeper trains, yeah. all you could hear was like the rumble of the, yeah, yeah. the 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 wheels and the line and the engine, and that that noise still kind of is is, is I cherish that noise. So if I if ever I'm going to sleep. If I can find something online to listen to, to need to get myself off, it would be something like that, or maybe like speech radio or something like that. So that's mm -hmm. my other favourite. But something like that, because it, it, it takes me back to then. It was, it was a very peaceful thing. I'll tell you a funny story, because one one band that you might be aware of, uh, the German group called Kraftwerk, yep. they, were, they were very much into this sort of noise and making it popular. I remember a story that one day they were touring America, and they were in New York. They were in an elevator shaft. And there was this like music or something horrible coming over from the mm -hmm. that was being piped in. So one of them actually got into and, and cut the wires with the pliers because okay. they found the, the noise of the actual elevator, mm -hmm. the bzzz, whatever it is, more interesting mm -hmm. than what was being piped in. And that, that to them was an influence and they made that ambience, you know, them and Brian Eno and that, that yeah. type of music, which I, which I purely, or which I, you know, dearly love. My my um, very first mental health nurse actually gave me a, a Brian Eno CD to listen mm. to because I think you like this, given your tastes. Mm. And it, and she was bang on, and, and, and I'm his biggest fan, you know. He's... And the thing is, it's everything that is formed in our relationships and our attachment as children that we find soothing or we find destructive. Mm -hmm. It can be experiences as children, yeah, yeah. even things like bullying and everything. Yeah, yeah. These are all conditioned responses which we have yeah. to our environment. Mm -hmm. So now, if you can find a good place and a good time, this is where a lot of hypnotherapy and relaxation will probably take you, uh, you know, they, they, they'll do the certain steps and take you to a place like a nice warm beach mm -hmm. where you can feel the sand on your toes. Yeah or a little or a yeah. nice green field where you can smell the grass and yeah. the sun beating down or you can smell the flowers. Mm -hmm. It's actually the, the practice of putting you in a better place mm -hmm. so your mind can relax. But if you have an association which mm -hmm. is relaxing mm -hmm. and soothing, you know, this, yeah. is, this is how you soothe babies. Mm -hmm. Why have we forgot that? Yeah. You know, I used to play my youngest son uh, classical music when Did he was a really? baby, yeah, wow. all the time in his room and 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 and, and it got to a point whereby he'd put it on himself. Yeah, yeah. It was the same classical CD, you know, slow yeah. classical music yeah, yeah. playing in the background. And he, he would just calm down. And even when he wasn't in his room on his cot, if you put that on and he was feeling, you know, a bit upset or something, teething, or some of the common things that happen, you play that and he would find that a comfort. Awesome, awesome. You know? I think, um, yeah, just going back to the whole beach thing that San, because it was said, I think it's been said numerous times, isn't it, that people that live along the coast are supposed to be the happiest people? Uh, I disagree with that. Do you disagree? Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because if you look at statistics, 
the problems that are faced by children in these holiday towns and the, I agree the experiences with that. they have. The limited opportunities, yeah. yeah and yeah, it's, yeah, it's just... Yeah. It, demoralises yeah. them and ruins them. That's why a lot of them leave. Mm. Now, they probably paced But isn't there off. a surge later on in life people draw this back is, to... This yeah. is what I was going to say. I yeah. mean, now at this age, I would love to live here down beside the river. I actually came and looked at a property here, but as you mentioned earlier on, that train sort of spoiled it for me. See, I would love that. that yeah. The train's a bonus to me. <laughs> yeah, but that's a relaxation thing. But yeah. trains, when they're constant, not intermittent. Yeah. yeah. Any intermittent noise is going yeah. to be disruptive. Yeah. Actually, a good friend of mine, she lives next <laughs> to a metro station. Mm. And um, whilst I find it quite, quite, quite nice, she says, unfortunately for her, it plays into because she suffers from constant migraines. So mm -hmm. it's not. So again, it's it's down to it's relative, isn't it? Down to individual. I was uh, I stayed. I rented a room. They were, they were actually my friends in, in when I was living in London in Edgware at that time uh, back around 1990. Yeah. And they lived. They bought this house 30 years before that. And the estate agents, they said he was absolutely lovely. He said, look, what I'm willing to do is um, let you come and visit the house. Why don't we do it on a Sunday? Okay. Then we can be relaxed. And I'll oh. meet you on this time. So they said, oh, what a really nice guy. So they went to visit the house, spent about half an hour there. They said, yes, we'll take it. And then when they moved in, they found out the Bedford line ran in the back garden. <laughs> and even to this day, although the, everything rattled, yeah. it got a point where it didn't fall over. But in their house, yeah. everything rattled. Right. The picture frames, everything. Okay. And I found it difficult to adjust to that, yeah, but they, yeah. you know, they give us a timing, so yes, it can be soothing. They got used to it. And you know what it is? Because, you know, um, my my family down south always used to live around the Slough area, mm -hmm. which was around the, the runways to Heathrow Airport. Yeah. Now, to me, that sort of noise is quite natural to me. If I was to be in a property that wasn't too far from an airport mm -hmm. and had, you know, planes flying mm -hmm. over, you know, every hour or half hour. See, to me... That isn't a big thing, but I know it's a lot of people that actually, is. That's something not I grew up with, yeah. They're not a half an hour. I actually lived there. Yeah. Uh, uh, just oh, I know, near I know. I had family folks that used to live block of flats right on the path, and I used to climb up to the roof, mm. and I could see mm. how, how brilliant timing is this. We've got yeah. a plane going over right now. That's that's actually, that's an actual plane, listeners, yeah. not uh, us putting in some... Uh, yeah, yeah, in the background. Yeah. yeah. But I actually literally see 10... Aeroplanes yeah. waiting to Lining queue, up, ready. Yeah. yeah, it's an awesome sight that. You but know. here's the thing, and yeah. I don't, and you don't hear this, but because I lived in it, I lived on the flight path. But I lived where they were landing, so yeah. the engine noise was less. Yeah. But if you landed where they took oh, off, it's louder when they take it's off. It's a lot is it? louder. You don't oh, want to live on that side. And 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 at that time, <laughs> do estate agents tell you that? Or no. Sorry. Probably they probably no, they don't, don't tell you that. Yeah. No. So um, at that time. Um, my youngest son, you know, we had to bring him up with hoovers and everything because yeah. of the noise, but he was fine. Yeah. And um, at that time, at 11 o'clock, without fail, every day, on, on the takeoff flight path where the planes yeah. took off, all car alarms go off because Concorde took off. Ah, yeah. At 11, you could set your watch by it. <laughs> it took off and set off everything around Colnbrook and around that area, right. set off all the car alarms, right. everything, even house alarms if they were. Right. Did that every day. Yeah, yeah. And I think going back to trains, there's always something. I think BBC Four did a special about it. Why? Why are, are the Brits so in love with trains? You know the whole train spotting mm -hmm. thing. There is a, a romantic is element. There? That, there is, yeah, yeah. There is a romantic element towards it when you think of like, you know, a brief encounter and films like that, which is set, there, mm -hmm. there's a lot of films set on trains which yeah. make for nice, you know. Yeah, especially. I mean, you know, the most famous one being Murder on the Orient Express. But yeah, I'm still yeah. trying to, you know. Yeah. Luckily, that well, I wasn't in Britain, though, was it? It was uh, on, on foreign, foreign yeah. travels. But, um, yeah. 
But this has been a really nice 20 minutes. Uh, it's the first time I got to record with you, Amir. So, um, how? just a last couple of minutes or so, how do you want to, for anyone out there who, who, you know, thinking about New Year's, what can they do and expect? Or they're a bit frightful, maybe they've not had a great year. How should they approach the next 12 months? A process how much of that is your expectations yeah. relating to how you are mm-hmm. and how other people are. Because... The things that we do for people, we expect everybody to be the same. Okay. And they're actually not. The world is a very different place. Right. So just be gentle on yourself. Awesome. Well, other than that, thanks very much for joining us, listeners. This is a great episode outside, recorded on Wylam at the, uh, just, between, just off Newburn. But a great live river walk. Come out here. You'll enjoy it as much as we do. Uh, join us again for part two very soon. Thank you very much. Part 2 of episode 93. Hope you enjoyed the first part, myself and therapist Amir. We were out and about doing a winter walk and we were talking about the benefits of nature for well-being. And in the second part, well you could say it's a follow-up because if you recall in our podcast series within lockdown, I talked to this gentleman, an author, his name is Stephen End. He wrote a quiz book, a footballing quiz book. And it was in relation also to raise awareness of all things to do with dementia, particularly in relation to its sort of footballing matters. We know that local footballer Alan Shearer did a very poignant documentary quite recently about that, exploring how a lot of a lot of footballers, uh, not of just previous generations, but the issue of dementia is very prevalent. And I think the link is well, it's it's ongoing, and I think more evidence is coming to fruition in terms of just how there is a link and how we must tackle this and certainly explore this and it leads to us questioning whether how we bring up our future players not just players but kids in terms of football in its relation to heading this has been a big year in terms of scientific data I know Chris Sutton on Five Live for example you know I listen to him on 606 he talks a lot about this but yeah, my, my guest, Stephen End, we record a podcast deep into lockdown. I say he's wrote a book, Football for Brains, and we're going to explore this uh, matter further. First of all, Stephen End, welcome back to Mentally Sound. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, Ricky. How are you over this festive period? Not bad. I had it quiet, but just how I wanted. I had, I had a good one, thank you. I uh, hope you did as well. This is, a, this is, yeah, I mean, we recorded a podcast with our therapist just I don't know. I didn't tell you this, but it was actually just after the World Cup final because we we scheduled to record on that day, and we were saying I'll meet you in the cafe after full time, and he messaged back says okay, well, I hope it doesn't go to penalties then, and then it did, and then we just had the most awesome final. But as a fellow football fan, Stephen, what was your um, thoughts about the World Cup and in the final in particular? Well, to to watch a final. For the first 80 minutes, I just thought France are never going to get back into this game. And then they just sort of sprung to life in the last 10 minutes somehow. And then it looked like they were they were going to be the winners. And, and then it went through, through um, extra time. And he thought, well, it's, it's going to be Messi's final after yeah. that when he scored the goal and he's going to get the winner. And then, yeah. um, you know, it went to 3-3 and then to penalties and... You know, it was anyone's game then, really. But yeah, I mean, to 
I, I do feel sorry for Mbappe, um, obviously being um, on the losing side and obviously scoring a hat trick in the in the World Cup final. And yeah, yeah, I, I mean, if you if you if someone told a player you were to score a hat trick in the World Cup final, you wouldn't expect to be on the losing side, would you? No, no. I mean, only um, Sir Jeff Hurst has obviously scored one before that, and he was on the winning side. So, mm. um, but yeah, I mean, France. I mean, they were. Um, out of the game. I mean, even before half time, they were making substitutions and changing the tactics. And mm. um, but like I say, by doing that, they did give them a chance and it did get them into the game again. So it made for a more entertaining final. And you know, you were sort of right on the edge of your seats all the way through the I game. I think really. Mbappe, from what I recall, I don't think he touched the ball in the first half. But I mean, did. Was it the greatest final ever of all finals? Or have we kind of. I know we'll, in terms of World Cup. The finals hasn't been as dramatic as you'd like it to be. I mean, 66 was a great final. But was this the greatest ever final, in your opinion? Um, in, in, I'd probably say in modern modern, modern yeah. days, yeah, I'd probably say one of the most exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's probably always exciting until the next one comes along, really, to be fair, yeah. so... And it just depends. It was just, it was just destined to be those two teams after after when England lost, unfortunately, to France in the quarterfinals, and Argentina, you know, made it through. It, it, it was on paper, it was the best final with those teams left over. Although, you know, a bit of a soft spot for Morocco there as well. I mean, they yeah. they done really a, really well to get as far as they did, and that's that's really put them on the map and their manager on the map. And you know, going forward, they they could be a you know a proper force going forward. I don't know if you saw the Lionel Messi documentary on the BBC. I watched it sort of before, during and after. And I think when I watched it after, most recently, you just I just felt more pleased for the guy. Um, what was his fifth tournament? And of course he was someone seen as a great talent but bereft of international honours. And of course his great rival Ronaldo won the Euros back in 2016, was it? So yeah. you, you, you kind of, in that whole big debate, is it Messi? Is it Ronaldo? I was sort of pipped Ronaldo because of winning the. And then what was it a, a couple of years back? I think it was, it was a, the first Copa America final played in lockdown, and Argentina finally did it. And then just the okay, this seemed to be a bit level now. But but I, I, yeah, you've got to you've got to give the crown to Messi now, surely, don't you? Yeah, I, I, I can't see Ronaldo carrying on much more and. In international level I mean the little fallout we had at the World Cup and different things and mm -hmm. um, you know the youngsters that are coming through especially the guy that scored the hat-trick and yeah. over the quarterfinals or semi-finals and um, yeah I mean he's he's he, he's been a you know he's been a up there with the best and you know mm -hmm. in, in the, probably the top five and mm -hmm. and different things and he, he's I think he finds it hard to admit that he's getting older and he's got to slow down and he's not going to get picked every game and yeah. things like that. And uh, like they always say, you know, about club football, don't they? You know, go there once but never go back again, kind of thing. And yeah, just like you know, he had Alex Ferguson, didn't he, and mm. as manager when he was there the first time, and then you know, it's it's just it it kind of depends on what the what the um, dressing room is like as well, mm. if the manager's still got the players and things like that as well. And there's, there's lots of ins and outs. I mean, I'm a, I was, I'm a huge admirer of both. You know, it wasn't like I was on one side or the other necessarily. I just 
felt quite lucky that we were living in, a, in an era where we could admire admire both talents. And uh, I think in Ronaldo's case, I admired, you know, this sort of self-discipline um, that he kind of carried on, which enabled to play him to play at a top level, you know, sort of mid to late 30s. But I don't know, in the past 12 months, I, I wouldn't say I've been hugely impressed with his attitude necessarily, but maybe that's a debate for another day. Before we talk about the serious matters, um yeah, we I think it I think it would be it would be incorrect of us not to mock the passing of the great talent that was Pele. And we did talk about him in the first podcast, didn't we, Steve? Because uh, your own your own uh, football team is Pitch Town had a big big input in the famous film that he was in escape to victory but yeah i mean what first of all what a great talent and how sad it was it did look like it was on the cards because he, he you know i think we were all aware that he was kind of gravely ill um recently but remind us all about how your team why they were a big part of that film and also um you have some interesting uh stats to share about him don't you yeah well um the, the Ipswich team played quite a lot of um, part in the in the filming of Escape to Victory. Some of it was done at the back of the, the training ground, I believe, it, in, in Ipswich and different parts of the mm-hmm. country and in the world as well. Yeah. Um, but it, it was, it, I think, the film came out in 1981, and so it was yeah. around the time when Ipswich were playing in in Europe and when they won the UEFA Cup in 1981 as well. The great Bobby Robson um, team, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and they they had several other players were playing um, in the team for. The, the team against Pele, yeah, um, and then they they had um, in goal for the for the German team was Laurie Civil who played in goal, um, and I had I had the great honour of playing cricket with him locally as well in the same team for two or three seasons as well, so that that was nice. Yeah. Um, and he, he obviously used to tell us some stories and different things as well, and then you had um, Russell Osmond and yeah. um, John Walk, and then there was um, some other players as well, so. Yeah, but I mean, Pele, um, and Pele was in it, and he was doing all these flicks and turns and different things. And apparently, mm. it was nearly nor, the whole film was nearly all done in, you know, not one, two, three, and four takes, but just in one go. Mm. So there was hardly any retakes because mm. that Pele was just, you know, someone had flicked the ball up and he'd do a volley or a turn, and mm. they they didn't have to edit it or do anything to it. It was just just there and then so it's it, yeah. it was just crazy yeah. but yeah I mean he's some of his um, stats um, I mean he, he made his senior debut at the age of 15 mm-hmm. in his whole career he scored um, 1,281 goals in 1,363 games um, he played for Santos yeah. He scored 619 goals yeah. in 638 games. And he won the World Cup in, on three occasions, firstly in 1958 and then lastly in 1970. The few anecdotes that I know, well, it's rumours um, regarding the film. So, yeah, as you say, the, the it wasn't as many takes needed. Apparently the bicycle kick... That he scored the equaliser yeah. was was one take, and I think they had to record a few more for the sake of different camera angles. But the very first one, where you know the first time we saw it, that was apparently the very take that he did it. 
And actually, um, as I was saying, I was listening to Russell Osman before on Five Live, and he was asked about his memories of the film. And he said, of course, you know, Pele was very humble. But regarding regarding Sylvester Stallone, apparently he was very, it wasn't very sociable. Of course, he was probably one of the biggest movie stars around at the time. And what I do know about that was is because he was spending all his time in his trailer writing Rocky Three. <laughs> really? Yeah. So there you have it. And I, and I think I don't think he really knew whether he was meant to wear gloves or not either. So I think a lot of oh, the time right. he wasn't wearing any gloves in the film. Yeah. So because okay. he he was, um, I think mm. they might have shown some warm ups or something, and then um, he got he got the ball thrown to him a few times, and mm. he had no gloves on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Escape to, Escape to Victory will get a good good showing over the next few days. You know, if not today or over the weekend. That yeah, will, that why will why is it always? Show, I know I know the Great Escape is shown over Christmas constantly, but why yeah. why is Escape to Victory? I mean, it's not a. I don't know. Maybe it's it, it kind of when it's Christmas, um, the sort of more cheesier films gets a bit of forgiveness over the festive time, so we get to watch it. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But on to more serious matters, Stephen. So do you want to remind um, listeners about the book that you wrote, what its attentions were, and how it's progressed since in terms of sort of sales and, and uh, re- recep- receptions that you've, that you've had? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I wrote the book in, in lockdown back in 2020 mm-hmm. um, and self-published it through a local, a local um, uh, publisher's or printers, sorry, um, and then sort of the, the sales have just been sort of fairly sort of steady and, and constant. Um, they, they have dropped off um, over the last few months, but I've I've sort of found different ways to sort of um, sort of bring them and pick them up again and different things. So yeah, it's just sort of ticking along nicely. Um, back in the um, earlier in the year, I linked in with the Head for Change people that is done by. Dr. Judith Gates, that is, um, uh, her husband is um, uh, a, a player that used to play for, for Sunderland back in the 1960s, and it's um, Eric Gates's um, brother. So oh, Judith okay. is Eric Gates's sister. Oh, wow. There's a link there, isn't there? So. Yes, yeah. So I, I sort of organised that. We had a, we had a good chat. Um, and then they've, they do their Head for Change um, game. Mm-hmm. Normally, um, in September, mm-hmm. um, and there, there was books available at the, at the game and things like that as well. And um, I, I do um, donate each book I sell. I give a donation to them, and also the Head for Change one that's done at the University of East Anglia as well with um, mm-hmm. Dr. Michael Gray. Um, and he, he's he was in on he talked on Talk Sport just before Christmas, really, yeah. um, about. Um, the investigations and different things that have gone into, um, you know, the, the effects of header and a ball over a long time, and you know, mm-hmm. trying to obviously eradicate it going forward. Um, I don't think myself it's going to be something that's ever going to be stopped in the game. But mm-hmm. if going forward with the generations, you know, future generations and children of the the era that are you know growing up now and getting to their teenagers years, that hopefully something will change. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still doing all I can. I I, I donate to um, books and different things to different um, charities and different things. 
like on the different Twitter pages and things like that, and sporting related things and and that as well. Just just as you know, giveaways for quizzes and mm. I've done a couple of quizzes where they've done stuff for um, surprises and things like that. When I've done a been a host and things like that. And, Stephen, um, so I'm looking at an article here because, of course, we discussed before that 2022 has been a big year in terms of scientific data and research in, in this field. So I think I'm reading here that a new one called, I don't know if you heard of the Brain Hope Study, led by Dr. Willie Stewart, where in, in terms of, you know, ex-professionals and why so dementias gain, gain prominence. Are you aware of this? And... Of course, this was, as we saw in the World Cup as well, with injuries and in terms of, uh, if you make the comparison with American football, you know how big concussion is over there, and I think it's led to lawsuits and um, rule changes. What do you see the, the immediate future within the football field, um, and what more can be done, and what should be done? I think, um, mainly at the moment, I think with the, the Willie Stewart, um um, investigation. I think that's been something that's been sort of ongoing for a long time. Like the other one, like the Scores Project, with the, the you know the different cognitive tests that they do on the the ex players, and you know it's it's all about getting the ex players and, and people you know that have played professional sport, either football or rugby, and you know and getting the people to do the tests and and things like that. So yeah, that that's very very important. I mean, going forward, um, I think it should be more um, stringent things like that if, if people do do go off um, they, they need to go off and they need to have like um concussion substitutes like they, they have seen in the you know in the world cup and different things like that that has yeah. to be brought into force and come to the forefront and you know instead of a doctor going on the pitch and waving their fingers in front of someone's eyes and they say yeah are you okay to carry on mm-hmm. um nine times out of ten a footballer has to be dragged off a pitch Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be more more stringent, and you know, even the recovery, um, the the recovery times as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if you do get knocked out, or you know, they do they do say that you know there's certain periods, and I think it's ten days or something like that. But um, you only have to look at boxing and things like that. If someone gets knocked out with boxing, I I don't know what the rules are on that. I think it's probably two or three months or something like that before they're allowed to fight again or something like that. But okay. um, but. But yeah, it, it just needs to be more publicised. I mean, when when the Iranian goalkeeper got injured, um, I mean that that was quite a talking point at half time. Um, and I mean, I think that game was covered on the BBC. So Alan Chiro probably did, and Gary Lineker did touch on that a little bit with the head injuries and things like that as well. So that again, that brought it to the forefront as well. And there was an issue. I was right, but there was also an example during the the Euros, the the women's Euros in the summer. I think there was a. I think I think Chris Sutton mentioned this as well because I think what Chris Sutton because he, he's he's quite he's quite passionate about this as well. You you were talking before about when a player goes down. You know when we see a player go down, a lot some of us can be suspect. Is it a dive? Is it real? And of course, you know, um, the players are sort of expected to kick the ball out of touch. Although depending on the timing or the moment of the game. Um, a lot of them might want to carry on, but there's a specific thing now, isn't there? That if if a player's gone down holding their heads, then it's an immediate cause of course for concern, isn't it? And, and the game should be stopped. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I, th- I think probably they the, the referees. I don't know whether they were in the World Cup or not. I think they whether they they were um, censored or something like the the bit on their pack on their arm that 
you know, mm. if they're not aware of it, then they get made aware of it, I think. So yeah. it, it seemed to stop fairly quickly and, that you know, there was a lot more people on the pitch sort of giving attention pretty fast. So, mm. yeah, that, that has always got to be, you know, to the, to the, um, you know, the forefront of things. I mean, with the Christian Eriksen thing, what happened in the Euros, yeah, things with, you know, that, you know, luckily, I mean, he, he's okay and he's, he's playing a game now, but, mm. You know, it could have been a whole lot different, and you know that could have been devastating. So, mm. but yeah, I mean, yeah, wherever there's um, a ball involved and players involved and corners and free kicks, there's always and tackles. There's always the element of injury. So, I, I can't see it changing at the moment. But um, maybe in the training aspects and different yeah. things, the the laws and that, mm. or, or should be they they should be written into them on you know how how long they're allowed to spend practicing or you know set pieces or clearing from a corner mm. from a header and things like that mm. so going forward i think that's going to be going going back to part. the origins of this um steve um of course before we hit the record button we were marking also marking the passing of george cohen um you know 1966 england icon part of that winning team of course much of that team very sadly has been blighted by dementia and of course I don't know if you watched the the Finding Jack Charlton documentary I think it was on the BBC as well how poignant yeah, that well, was I did see that yeah yeah I think I think that was on sort of after we last spoke what was your what was your um feelings upon that um did it did you did you feel that it was in in one sense sort of visual documentive evidence of how such a thing does affect ex-players and how we're not taking it on properly and there was there was the other documentary what was on about um steve thompson the rugby player who, who doesn't remember anything about the world cup as well i mean that that was quite um quite alarming really to to see that and i i i bought his book and um and read that as well and that that was quite quite a hard read because it was you know, it's to the point, and you know some of the stories in there. It's, it's well worth a read as well. Um, but yeah, I mean Jack Charlton. You know, he, he was one of a kind, really, of his managers of that that sort of era, really. And yeah, um, it, it, it was very very sad to see how he was in his later life. Yeah, it's worth um, it's worth looking at uh, Bernie Slavin's feed on social media. He shares quite a few stories about his times with Big Jack, but. Do you think do you think there there is a generation thing there? I and mean, we talked before about comparing generations till till now. But of course back then it was a different game, they played with a much heavier ball. But I don't think that should take away from how we move forward to just to say, oh, it was a thing of the past. Because more evidence the more evidence the better in this case, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean uh, I I think I think they um players should probably get tested more regularly they should have more mri scans and things like that you know on 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 the brain and stuff like that it, it should be nearly like um a footballer's mot kind of speak yeah that yeah. sort of thing and probably after when they stop playing maybe even mm. five years ten years after when they've stopped playing and just carry on the research that way as well yeah. because i i remember terry butcher sort of talking about it at some point mm. and, and he, he was saying well yeah all the footballs I've headed in my career yeah. but you know he, he's sort of mid to late 60s now he said well I, I'm not going to know if it's going to affect me sure. I, 
you know, in the end, I'm not going to know. Um, he, he's like he's he said before. He said, you know, it's too too late for the people of my generation. Mm-hmm. But going forward, it's it's going to have to be, you know, the norm where that aspect of the game is cut out as much as it can be. I believe Alan Shearer did the same in his documentary, didn't he? He, he had sort of various scans done. And I think he was saying the same thing, that he's not going to know whether this is something that lies dormant and becomes more prevalent later on. But of course, as, yeah. as we as we both alluded to, um, the more research, the better in this field. But go, one more issue, point about the origin, Steve. I think it was the, although he wasn't in the 66 squad, I think he was part of the 70, 1970 squad, but the family of the late Jeff Assel, because um, I hadn't heard anything prior to this, but it was it was his family, and particularly I think his daughter, which really yeah, kind of pushed yeah, sure. this pushed this issue to the forefront, wasn't it? It was it was Dawn who was um, like the the main person who was like wanting it to go to you know to be brought up in Parliament and things like that, and like a lot of the um, the signatures on on the different um, they have to go through to get things passed through Parliament to get people to look into different things and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's the the Jeff Astle um, trust and things like that as well. Yeah. and I mean that they are, they're fighting every day to try and get get things done. And mm. yeah, I mean, say but this is this is taking a this is taking a legal a legal turn now, isn't it? Involving yeah the family of Jeff Astle and other, other ex footballers. Yeah, yeah, they've they've they're, you know they've they've taken it to court or it has gone through through the courts. I mean that that could. Legally, I suppose that could open a lot of floodgates to a lot of different claims um, mm. going forward. Um, it could be could be costing the higher up or FIFA or the you know higher mm. um, people in the game a lot a lot of money in the future. I think possibly. the the group uh, the legal group also includes the family of the late Nobby Styles, and I'm reading here that with his his particular case it was CTE, which is stands for chronic. Traumatic, and I hope I pronounce this properly. Is it encephalopathy? Am I saying that right? Have you heard of that one before? I think so yeah, I have. I have heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, he, he's he's been obviously on the, the the different television programs. What you you know you see when they go on the news for a little while and different things. So he's. I've heard him on Talk Sport a few times, and um, yeah, uh, it's quite an interesting thing to to listen to. Do you get that feeling as well? You don't feel that going down the legal route it could potentially cause, you know, us against them, and and you you might have certain bodies that try to defend themselves, you know, against the odds, that sort of thing. I like to think on this though, Steve, that that most bodies, if not all, are on the same side. I I, I think I'd like I'd like to see more people support it, but I I think clubs are very very reluctant to admit that players in the past may have had um some sort of brain injury or you know they're a little bit kind of on the fence on what, that, I okay think. what what leads you to think that um in maybe even like going as far as to say like my book right. and like different places where i've tried to get it right um you know once they may see it as like being there, then they're kind of admitting to what's happened, kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I, I just find that um, I know it's harder to get things out into social media and what it was before lockdown mm. and things like that as well. But just sometimes supporting things, and you, 
you know, it does seem, you know, something that does need to be supported, but it's perhaps not well supported enough. And, you know, I think um, the, the funding that should be available should be a lot more for players and, you know, like for, for care fees and things like that as well, where people need it going forward. Do you feel that that's the, the I guess, the evidence towards that, how serious bodies take take on it, how much they donate, how much time they get they give towards research and welfare and um I know that, you know, football clubs now, especially amongst the big ones, they have a a foundation charity wing, Newcastle, uh, uh, sorry, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, um Everton have a great sort of in the community um foundation wing which which we had on our on our podcast as well. But yeah, I guess it depends on how much the time and dedication and funding that they lead with this that you can tell how many people are on board yeah i mean the um, I, I saw somewhere just before christmas and um, the the middlesbrough one were going around to the local care homes and taking the uh, well the fa cup or a replica of the fa cup and there was um a couple of people that were, were there um or ex-professionals yeah i remember that seeing that yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they were taking it around and, and and just something like that to someone who's suffering dementia like mm. with the sporting memories and sporting memories, you know yeah. the little things that you know can, can jog people's memories like taking some photographs or yeah. even them as a player in a photograph and that mm. can just you know put a smile on someone's face and you know help them remember and they might say well that's so and so in there and that's so and so oh that's the goalkeeper I used to play with and then they'll remember the person's name mm. but Ten minutes later, they might not be able to remember it, but they've remembered it at that time. Mm. And you know, the, to see someone do that, it's, it's just amazing. Mm. Sure. And um, we're coming up towards the end of this podcast, yeah, I feel like we can we can talk forever about this because, as ever with football, we we digress into into different areas, like we did at the start of this podcast. But um, it's been it's been great talk, talking to you about this. Um, but amongst the, I think one of the most very latest bit of news, I know there's been some news up in Scotland about what they're doing, but from what I understand as well, um, in England, the Football Association, they're trialling, um, certainly under 12 level, that uh, there's going to be a ban on heading. Now, of course, I remember saying to this, you, to this to you last time that that is something like that will be sort of a watershed moment that'll be one that'll take its course, I think, and it'll be very interesting to see where it leads to. But, yeah, in terms of dementia awareness, I think it's... I'm convinced now that there is uh, a link there because enough players, enough ex-professionals um, have come out and been advocates. And and credit to their families for being strong advocates for this field as well. Um, the families of Jeff Astle and many of the 1966 uh, icons, uh, the, the families of... Of, of of those heroes then so um there's a there's a lot of hard work goes on in the background to to get it to the forefront and you know mm. people are, are never gonna um let it lie so to speak until it it probably does come i mean it's like chris sutton he, he lost his dad as well didn't he you know it's like you know we don't know of a family or don't know of a person who hasn't been touched by a certain disease condition certainly when it comes to dementia you know i lost a, a couple of aunts and uncles to to this disease and um you know and in 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 a very relatable way as well with regards to parkinson's and how much with we, we mentioned before muhammad ali how they're exploring that links with that field as well i think you mentioned boxing didn't you steve yeah. so yeah i mean i think sports 
as much as we love it, I think it also has a duty to to take take care of the welfare um, aspects of it. I know there's a recent BBC article about whether um, football clubs, you know, take care of uh, the mental health of a lot of the young players. You know, you know when you talk about dreams and and young footballers. It's 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 not an easy line to walk on because a lot you know the majority a lot of people forget a lot of these young kids, a lot of them don't make it. It's only the few lucky ones that do in the end. And how does a young young kid take that rejection on um, if they don't, you know, if they're unable to achieve their their ends? And what how is their welfare taken out then? Because I know a lot of ex players who played in so maybe the lower divisions who had higher expectations to play and and got took on within the books of a you know a big club and then it, for whatever reason sadly they weren't able to make it and how that sort of rejection take you know i've heard a lot of sub players talk about that so there's there's a lot more to be done and certainly within the field of dementia but but that rounds um, episode 93 of our special new year episode thank you for being part of this all the best in the new year and let us know what you do next and you know get to talk again it'll be really fun yeah, it's been good. Really enjoyed it. As I say in all these podcasts, look after yourself, but more importantly, take care of your mental health. All the best for the new year. I'm sure myself and Amy, our therapist, will get together again and we'll probably talk about resolutions in a lot more detail. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening.